The Poetic Principle. In speaking of the poetic principle, I have no design to be either thorough or profound. While discussing, very much at random, the essentiality of what we call poetry, my principal purpose will be to cite for consideration some few of those minor English or American poems which best suit my own taste, or which upon my own fancy have left the most definite impression. By minor poems, I mean, of course, poems of little length. And here in the beginning, permit me to say a few words in regard to a somewhat peculiar principle, which, whether rightfully or wrongfully, has always had its influence in my own critical estimation of the poem. I hold that a long poem does not exist. I maintain that the phrase, a long poem, is simply a flat contradiction in terms. I need scarcely observe that a poem deserves its title only inasmuch as it excites by elevating the soul. The value of the poem is in the ratio of this elevating excitement. But all excitements are, through a cycle necessity, transient. That degree of excitement which would entitle a poem to be so called at all cannot be sustained throughout a composition of any great length. After the lapse of a half hour, the very utmost. It flags, fails, a revulsion ensues, and then the poem is, in effect, and in fact, no longer such. There are no doubt many who have found difficulty in reconciling the critical dictum that paradise lost is to be devoutly admired throughout, with the absolute impossibility of maintaining for it, during perusal, the amount of enthusiasm which that critical dictum would demand. This great work, in fact, is to be regarded as poetical only when, losing sight of that vital requisite in all works of art, unity, we view it merely as a series of minor poems. If, to preserve its unity, its totality of effect or impression, we read it, as would be necessary, at a single setting, the result, if, to preserve its unity, its totality of effect or impression, we read it, as would be necessary, at a single sitting, the result is but a constant alternation of excitement and depression. After a passage of what we feel to be true poetry, there follows inevitably a passage of platitude, which no critical prejudgment can force us to admire. But if upon completing the work, we read it again, omitting the first book, that is to say, commencing with the second, we shall be surprised at now finding that admirable which we before condemned, that damnable which we had previously so much admired. It follows from all this that the ultimate aggregate or absolute effect of even the best epic under the sun is a nullity. And this is precisely the fact. In regard to the Iliad, we have, if not positive proof, at least very good reason for believing it intended as a series of lyrics. But... Granting the epic intention, I can only say that the work is based in an imperfect sense of art. The modern epic is of the superstitious ancient model, but an inconsiderate and blindfolded imitation. But the day of these artistic anomalies is over. If at any time any very long poem were popular in reality, which I doubt, it is at least clear that no very long poem will ever be popular again. That the extent of a poetical work is the measure of its merit seems undoubtedly, when we thus state it, a proposition sufficiently absurd. 
yet we are indebted for it to the quarterly reviews. Surely there can be nothing in mere size, abstractly considered. There can be nothing in mere bulk, so far as a volume is concerned, which has so continuously elicited admiration from these saturnine pamphlets. A mountain, to be sure, by the mere sentiment of physical magnitude which it conveys, does impress us with a sense of the sublime. But no man is impressed after this fashion by the material grandeur of even the Columbiad. Even the quarterlies have not instructed us to be so impressed by it. As yet, they have not insisted on our estimating Lamartine by the cubic foot or Pollock by the pound. But what else are we to infer from their continual prating about sustained effort? If this indeed is a thing condemnable. If by sustained effort any little gentleman has accomplished an epic, let us frankly commend him for the effort, if this indeed be a thing commendable. But let us forbear praising the epic on the effort's account. It is to be hoped that common sense in the time to come will prefer deciding upon a work of art rather by the impression it makes, by the effect it produces, than by the time it took to impress the effect or by the amount of sustained effort which has been found necessary in effecting the impression. The fact is that perseverance is one thing, and genius quite another. Nor can all the quarterlies in Christendom confound them. By and by, this proposition, with many which I have just been urging, will be received as self-evident. In the meantime, by being generally condemned as falsities, they will not be essentially damaged as truths. On the other hand, it is clear that a poem may be improperly brief. Undue brevity degenerates into mere epigrammism. A very short poem, while now and then producing a brilliant or vivid, never produces a profound or enduring effect. There must be the steady pressing down of the stamp upon the wax. De Branger has wrought innumerable things, pungent and spirit-stirring, but, in general, they have been too imponderous to stamp themselves deeply into the public attention, and thus, as so many feathers of fancy have been blown aloft only to be whistled down the wind. A remarkable instance of the effect of undue brevity in depressing a poem, in keeping it out of the popular view, is afforded by the following exquisite little serenade. I arise from the dreams of thee in the first sweet sleep of night, when the winds are breathing low, and the stars are shining bright. I arise from dreams of thee, and a spirit in my feet has led me, who knows how, to thy chamber window, sweet. The wandering airs, they faint on the dark and silent stream. The champak odors fail like sweet thoughts in a dream. The nightingale's complaint, it dies upon her heart, and I must die on thine, O oh, beloved as thou art. O oh, lift me from the grass, I die, I faint, I fail. Let thy love and kisses rain on my lips and eyelids pale. My cheek is cold and white, alas, my heart beats loud and fast. O oh, press it close to thine again, where it will break at last. Very few, perhaps, are familiar with these lines. 
yet no less a poet than Shelley is their author. Their warm yet delicate and ethereal imagination will be appreciated by all, but by none so thoroughly as by him who has himself arisen from sweet dreams of one beloved to bathe in the aromatic air of southern midsummer night. One of the finest poems by Willis, the very best, in my opinion, which he has ever written, has no doubt, through the same effect of undue brevity, been kept back from its proper position, not less in the critical than in the popular view. And here we go. The shadows lay along Broadway. T'was near the twilight tide, and slowly there a lady fair was walking in her pride. Alone walked she, but viewlessly walked spirits at her side. Peace charmed the street beneath her feet, and honor charmed the air. And all astir looked kind on her, and called her good as fair. For all God ever gave to her, she kept with cherry care. She kept with care her beauties rare from lovers warm and true. For her heart was cold to all but gold and the rich came not to woo. But honored well are charms to sell, if priests the selling do. Now walking there was one more fair, a slight girl, lily pale, and she had unseen company to make the spirit quail. Twixt want and scorn she walked forlorn, and nothing could avail. No mercy now can clear her brow, for this world's peace to pray. For as love's wild prayer dissolved in air, her woman's heart gave way. But the sin forgiven by Christ in heaven, by men is cursed alway. In this composition, we find it difficult to recognize the Willis who has written so many mere verses of society. The lines are not only richly ideal, but full of energy. While they breathe an earnestness, an evident sincerity of sentiment, for which we look in vain throughout all the other works of this author. While the epic mania, while the idea that, to merit in poetry, prolixity is indispensable, has for some years past been gradually dying out of the public mind, by mere dint of its own absurdity, we find it succeeded by a heresy too palpably false to be long tolerated, but one which, in the brief period it has already endured, may be said to have accomplished more in the corruption of our poetical literature than all other enemies combined. I allude to the heresy of the didactic. It has been assumed tacitly and avowedly, directly and indirectly, that the ultimate object of poetry is truth. Every poem, it is said, should inculcate a moral, and by this moral is the poetical merit of the work to be adjudged. We Americans especially have patronized this happy idea, and we Bostonians, very especially, have developed it in full. We have taken it into our heads that to write a poem simply for the poem's sake, and to acknowledge such to have been our design, would be to confess ourselves radically wanting in the true poetic dignity and force. But the simple fact is that, would we but permit ourselves to look into our own souls, we should immediately there discover that under the sun there neither exists nor can exist any work more thoroughly dignified, more supremely noble than this very poem, this poem per se, this poem which is a poem and nothing more, this poem written solely for the poem's sake. With as deep a reverence for the truth as ever inspired the bosom of man, I would nevertheless limit in some measure its modes of inculcation. I would limit to enforce them. I would not enfeeble them by dissipation. The demands of truth are severe. She has no sympathy with the myrtles. 
All that which is so indispensable in song is precisely all that with which she has nothing whatever to do. To enforce a truth, we need severity rather than effervescent language. We must be simple, precise, terse. We must be cool, calm, unimpassioned. We must be in that mood which, as nearly as possible, is the exact converse of the poetical. He must be blind, who does not perceive the radical and chasmal differences between the truthful and the poetical modes of inculcation. He must be theory-mad beyond redemption, who in spite of these differences shall still persist in attempting to reconcile the obstinate oils and waters of poetry and truth. Dividing the world of mind into its three most immediately obvious distinctions, we have the pure intellect, taste, and the moral sense. I place taste in the middle because it is just this position which, in the mind, it occupies. It holds intimate relations with either extreme. We find the offices of the trio marked with a sufficient distinction. Just as the intellect concerns itself with truth, so taste informs us of the beautiful, while the moral sense is regardful of duty. Of this latter, while conscience teaches the obligation and reason the expediency, taste contents herself with displaying the charms, waging war upon vice solely on the grounds of her deformity, her disproportion, her animosity to the fitting to the appropriate, to the harmonious, in a word, to beauty. An immortal instinct, deep within the spirit of man, is thus, plainly, a sense of the beautiful. This it is which administers to his delight in the manifold forms and sounds and odors and sentiments amid which he exists. And just as the lily is repeated in the lake, or the eyes of Amaryllis in the mirror. So is the mere oral or written repetition of these forms and sounds and colors and odors and sentiments a duplicate source of delight. But this mere repetition is not poetry. He who shall simply sing with however glowing enthusiasm or with however vivid a truth of description of the sights and sounds and odors and colors and sentiments which greet him in common with all mankind, he, I say, has yet failed to prove his divine title. There is still a something in the distance which he has been unable to attain. We have still a thirst, unquenchable to allay, unquenchable to allay which he has not shown us the crystal springs. This thirst belongs to the immortality of man. It is at once a consequence and an indication of his perennial existence. It is the desire of the moth for the star. It is no mere appreciation of the beauty before us, but a wild effort to reach the beauty above. Inspired by the ecstatic presence of the glories beyond the grave, we struggle by multi-form combinations among the things and thoughts of time, to attain a portion of that loveliness whose very elements, perhaps, appertain to eternity alone. And thus, when by poetry or when by music, the most entrancing of the poetic moods, we find ourselves melted into tears, we weep then, 
not as the abate Gravina supposes, through excess of pleasure, but through a certain petulant and patient sorrow at our own inability to grasp now, wholly, here on earth, at once and forever, those divine and rapturous joys which through the poem or through the music we attain to but brief and indeterminate glimpses. The struggle to apprehend the supernal loveliness, this struggle on the part of our souls fittingly constituted, has given to the world all that which it, the world, has ever been enabled at once to understand and to feel as poetic. The poetic sentiment, of course, may develop itself in various modes, in painting, in sculpture, in architecture, in the dance, very especially in music, and very peculiarly, and with a wide field in the composition of the landscape garden. Our present theme, however, has regard only to its manifestation in words. And here let me speak briefly on the topic of rhythm. Contenting myself with the certainty that music, in its various modes of meter, rhythm, and rhyme, is of so vast a moment in poetry as never to be wisely rejected, is so vitally important an adjunct that he is simply silly who declines its assistance, I will now pause to maintain its absolute essentiality. It is in music, perhaps, that the soul most nearly attains the great end for which, when inspired with poetic sentiment, it struggles, the creation of supernal beauty. It may be, indeed, that here this sublime end is, now and then, attained in fact. We are often made to feel with a shivering delight that from an earthly harp are stricken notes which cannot have been unfamiliar to the angels. And thus there can be little doubt in the union of poetry of music in its popular sense. We shall find the widest field for the poetic development. The old bards and minnesingers have advantages which we do not possess, and Thomas More, singing his own songs, was, in the most legitimate manner, perfecting them as poems. To recapitulate, then, I would define in brief the poetry of words as the rhythmical creation of beauty. Its sole arbiter is taste. With the intellect or with the conscience, it has only collateral relations, unless, incidentally, it has no concern whatever, either with duty or with truth, a few words, however, in explanation. That pleasure, which is at once the most pure, the most elevating, and the most intense, is derived, I maintain, from the contemplation of the beautiful. In the contemplation of beauty, we alone find it possible to attain that pleasurable elevation or excitement of the soul, which we recognize as the poetic sentiment, and which is so easily distinguished from truth, which is the satisfaction of the reason, or from passion, which is the excitement of the heart. I make beauty, therefore, using the word as inclusive of the sublime, I make beauty the province of the poem, simply because it is an obvious rule of art that effects should be made to spring as directly as possible from their causes. No one as yet having been weak enough to deny that the peculiar elevation in question is at least most readily attainable in the poem. It by no means follows, however, that the incitements of passion or the precepts of duty or even the lessons of truth may not be introduced in a poem and with advantage, for they may subserve, incidentally, in various ways, the general purpose of the work. 
but the true artist will always contrive to tone them down in proper subjection to that beauty, which is the atmosphere and the real essence of the poem. Thus, although in a very cursory and imperfect manner I have endeavored to convey to you my conception of the poetic principle, it has been my purpose to suggest that, while this principle itself is strictly and simply the human aspiration for supernal beauty, the manifestation of the principle is always found in an elevating excitement of the soul. Quite independent of that passion, which is the intoxication of the heart, or of that truth, which is the satisfaction of the reason, for, in regard to passion, alas, its tendency is to degrade rather than to elevate the soul. Love, on the contrary, love, the true, the divine Eros, the Uranian, as distinguished from the Dionysian Venus, is unquestionably the purest and truest of all poetical themes. And in regard to truth, if, to be sure, through the attainment of truth, we are led to perceive a harmony where none was apparent before, we experience at once the true poetical effect. But this effect is referable to the harmony alone, and not in the least degree to the truth, which merely served to render the harmony manifest. We shall reach, however, more immediately a distinct conception of what the true poetry is, by mere reference to a few of the simple elements which induce in the poet himself the true poetical effect. He recognizes the ambrosia which nourishes his soul. In the bright orbs that shine in heaven, in the volutes of the flower, in the clustering of the low shrubberies, in the waving of the grain fields, in the slanting of tall eastern trees, in the blue distance of mountains, in the grouping of clouds, in the twinkling of half-hidden brooks, in the gleaming of silver rivers, in the repose of sequestered lakes, in the star-mirrored depths of lonely wells, he perceives it in the songs of birds and the harps, in the sighing of the night wind, in the repining voice of the forest, in the surf that complains to the shore, in the fresh breath of the woods, in the scent of the violet, in the voluptuous perfume of the hyacinth, in the suggestive odor that comes to him at eventide from far distant undiscovered islands, over dim oceans, illimitable and unexplored, he owns it in all noble thoughts, in all unworldly motives, in all holy impulses, in all chivalrous, generous, and self-sacrificing deeds. He feels it in the beauty of women, in the grace of her step, in the luster of her eye, in the melody of her voice, in her soft laughter, in her sigh, in the harmony of the rustling of her robes. He deeply feels it in her winning endearments, in her burning enthusiasms, in her gentle charities, in her meek and devotional endurance. Above all, ah, far above all, he kneels to it, he worships it in the faith, in the purity, in the strength, and the altogether divine majesty of her love. Let me conclude by the recitation of yet another brief poem, one very different in character from any that I have before quoted. It is by Motherwell, and is called The Song of the Cavalier. With our modern and altogether rational ideas of the absurdity and impiety of warfare, we are not precisely in that frame of mind best adapted to sympathize with the sentiments and thus to appreciate the real excellence of the poem. To do this fully, we must identify ourselves in fancy with the soul of the old cavalier. Then mount, then mount, brave gallants all, and don your helmets amain. 
death's couriers, fame and honor, call us to the field again. No shrewish tears shall fill our eyes when the sword hilt is in our hand. Heart whole will part, and no wit sigh for the fairest of the land. Let piping swain and craven white thus weep and pulling cry. Our business is like men to fight and hero-like to die. Christina Ostrom. You ready to talk about Poe? Yeah. All right. So um, when were you first exposed to Poe? Tell me that story. Oh, in my life? Yeah. Do you recall? Middle school, probably. Mm -hmm. And and was it striking at all? I remember the Raven and Annabelle Lee, of course. Hmm. Did he write one about a murder? Oh, yeah. Or about being... Well, yeah. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Was there one about being in a coffin? Mm. Probably. I that remember that one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like. When you read the essay for the first time, when was that? When you asked me to. Um, last last two week. Sum- two, sum- <laughs> two summers ago when two Silas ago. was. When Silas was. So you'd already, we'd already hung out quite some time and then you joined the. Yeah. So you'd, men- you'd referred to it many times before mm-hmm. I actually read the, the essay. Well, because you did. I mean, the first round of small group on small groups, I sort of sort of participated in because you started it right before I left for Australia in 2012. So I read some of it, but I don't think we had read Poe, or I didn't We didn't it. get to it. Anyway. We didn't get to it yet before I left. I was just going to say I was restruck this last <laughs> week. At, um, I agree with Poe's assertion that it's more about the impression like poetry is more about the impression that's left about the experience that a person remembers and what it makes them feel while they're while they're reading it that those are but that's what uh well what did he say that's it yeah, yeah. he said it beautifully of oh, course good, right yeah, yeah and course. we we don't i don't <laughs> because i do and i uh, you know, like, well, I like Impressionist art, for instance, and mm. it's not always very defined lines, right? Yeah. But it definitely gives the impression that that's a bowl of fruit sitting on the table, mm. although the lines aren't, aren't clearly quite, drawn. Yeah. This is a lily pond, and that, that's a bridge. Right. <laughs> so I, I tend to agree that no matter if the poetry is, you know, uh, grammatically perfect or like if the meter is perfect although i mean i think that the the meter and the rhyming that probably does have an influence on the impression the emotional experience that you have while you're reading it but if the overall emotional experience is elating or whatever then that what you're left with probably is the thing that you're going to remember not necessarily that the lines rhymed in such a pattern or you know for instance i I remember annabelle lee rhymes 
it's a rainy poem. Yeah, yeah. But what I remember most is the impression that it's like beautiful and tragic and mm. and the feelings. The, the feelings. Well, let, <laughs> let's let's talk about the feelings for a second. Yeah. It doesn't make you feel good necessarily. Annabelle Lee or Annabelle Lee. I'll I'll read it. <laughs> it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden, she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. She was a child and I was a child in this kingdom by the sea. And we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabelle Lee, with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud by night, chilling my Annabelle Lee, so that her high-born kinsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud, chilling and killing my Annabelle. But our love was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee, and the stars never rise, but I see the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so, all the night tide, I lay down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life, and my bride, in her sepulchre by the sea, in her tomb by the side of the sea. So how, do, how does that make you feel? Good? <laughs> Did I say that? No. Okay, I didn't think so. No, you never said that. <laughs> Oh, I, I used, feel so nice. I think I used the word tragic. Mm, definitely tragic. <laughs> so, so there is, but there is beauty in tragedy if you choose. Oh yeah. There's an elegance. Well, yeah, and I think that's what Annabelle makes me feel. Mm. You know, describing her, their separation, her death, and their separation, and his lifelong sorrow. He spends all his time. I lie down by the side in her tomb by the sea by the side of the sea in describing her death and their separation he's not just obviously it's in the way he says it you know it's not just we were separated she died yeah. so he somehow makes it as you said elegant it's not unhappy feeling obviously mm -hmm. and it's tragic but but it doesn't move you to tears uh, no not this one what do you mean not this one you're moved to tears by some poetry oh yeah which ones well the goblin market Oh my gosh, yeah. Rossetti, okay. Yeah, yeah. Rossetti has some other ones that are, yeah, the Rossetti ones, I think, so she has some others that that I have cried over on first reading. Mm. I cry almost every time I read The Goblin Market. I, mm -hmm. I only remember one time that I didn't cry reading it. Was that the first time? Or? <laughs> no, probably 
probably the 15th time. No, I don't, <laughs> like, like, I don't know. Yeah. I was with some other girlfriends that don't. Oh. I had I had shared like, oh, I read this neat poem. This is how it made me feel and mm. what it made me think of. Mm. And I don't think they shared my love for poetry. So I read it to them and they were kind of like, why are you reading this to me? So that time I didn't cry because I felt uncomfortable because I realized that my, you know, my grand idea was falling flat. But I, that like, happens. The thing, the thing about Rossetti that makes me cry often is the closeness to the reality of, like, my heart. As in, like, she writes about sin and um, redemption. And the Goblin Market is about redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the sisterhood of redemption. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the things, the things that will strike me and bring me to tears. So Annabelle Lee and Poe here doesn't have that like redemptive beauty f- for me. Mm. No, it doesn't. Definitely no. not. Redemption is some is is a thing that will bring me to tears, and that's theme. not present in a lot of Poe. No, no. <laughs> so I picked up Poe early, and after reading my favorites uh, time and again. And I bought this copy. Well, this is probably not the original copy. I bought a copy of this book. And I was struck by the, how do I put it? Melancholy of Poe. But I got a little bored with poetry because at that stage in my life, I had not developed a taste for poetry. I had a taste for prose. So I, when I discovered at the back of the book that the, there was snippets of letters and, and, and things, I just picked it up and started reading it. And that's when I stumbled on Poetic principle. The poetic principle. As I was trundling along in the poetic principle, he, he wound up moving into the problem of truth and beauty. So in different ideologies, they insist that truth and beauty are intertwined somehow and that something is ugly if it isn't true. Mm. And that if you like it, you there's something wrong with you. There's something broken and immoral that you like about it. If it's not true. If it if it doesn't if it doesn't shout truth, not whether or not this is true or isn't true. If someone describes a tree as green, is it true or not true? If in Christianity or in feminism, or or whatever the case may be, you see this most often in social communism, and where where you have to somehow shoehorn in some moral. So he's he's there and he's dividing the two up. He's saying things can be true. And things can be beautiful. But if you're going to write things that are true, you shouldn't worry about it being pretty. Mm. That was very striking to me. Tell the truth and tell it well. But it follows then. This is how he won me over with his reasoning. It follows then that things that are beautiful should be preoccupied with being beautiful and not necessarily true. They don't have to be true. They need to be preoccupied with being beautiful and the things that are truth need to be preoccupied with the truth. And it is absolutely true that that beautiful things have truth in them and that truth has beauty in it. But you shouldn't be worrying one with the other. I think that this resonated with me particularly because it was a hobby horse of, of Tolkien, um, that you can make something beautiful without trying to turn it into an allegory. And he was always trying to prevent people from turning the Lord of the Rings into an allegory of the Great War or an allegory of, of 
the A-bomb or an allegory of Christ. Why that was striking to me uh, was the way he was able to describe it and the way he led me into that. Because he, he said he told the truth and he told it well. It was a beautiful truth that he was telling, which was uh, hilarious to me. Right? He's like, truth should have nothing to do with beauty, and now I'm going to... Now I'm going to convince you with a well-reasoned argument that is beautiful. Talking still. I'm sorry. Poe. Got it. Yeah. Let me read some of my favorites. Here we go. I'm on page 190. With, a deep, with as deep a reverence for the true as ever inspired the bosom of man, I will nevertheless limit in some measure its modes of inculcation. I will limit to enforce them. I will not enfeeble them by dissipation. The demands of truth are severe. She has no sympathy with the myrtles. All that which is so indispensable in song is precisely all that with which she has nothing whatever to do. It is but making her a flaunting paradox to wreathe her in gems and flowers. In enforcing a truth, we need severity rather than effervescent language. We must be simple, precise, terse. We must be cool, calm, unimpassioned. In a word, we must be in the mood, which, as nearly as possible, is the exact converse of the poetical. He must be blind, indeed, who does not perceive the radical and chasmal differences between the truthful and the poetical modes of inculcation. He must be theory-mad beyond redemption, who, in spite of these differences, shall still persist in attempting to reconcile the obstinate oils and waters of poetry and truth. And I think that's funny because in this day and age, if I, you, if, if I just quoted him verbatim in order to make my point, people would complain that I was being too flowery, that I was being too poetical Probably in making my point. Yeah. Right. It's like he can't help it. <laughs> he can't help it, yeah. But he's excited about it. I mean, the, his, his annoyance seems to jump out at me. He's, irri he, he's irritable. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite passage in the essay? Well, <laughs> an immortal indistinct deep within the spirit of man is thus plainly a sense of the beautiful. Maybe that's exactly what it was. No. Anyway. Let me start over. An, Im an immortal instinct deep within the spirit of man is thus plainly a sense of the beautiful. This is it which administers to his delight in the manifold forms and sounds and odors and the sentiments amid which he exists. Again, he's not talking about distinct things. These are sentiments. It's yeah. an instinct. It's yeah. ethereal somehow. Anyway, it's and an just yeah. yeah, yeah, and just as the lily is repeated on the lake or the eyes of the amaryllis in the mirror, so is the mere oral or written repetition of these forms and sounds and colors and odors and sentiments a duplicate source of delight. But this is mere repetition, not poetry. He who shall simply sing with however glowing enthusiasm or with however vivid a truth of description of the sights and the sounds and the odors and the colors and the sentiments which greet him in common with all mankind, he, I say, has yet failed to prove his divine title. 
There is still a something in the distance which he has been un unable to attain. That was it. There is still a something in the distance which he has been unable to attain. We have still a thirst unquenchable to allay, which he has not shown us the crystal springs. This thirst belongs to the immortality of man. It is at once a consequence and an indication of his perennial existence. It is the desire of the moth for the star. It is no mere appreciation of the beauty before us, but a wild effort to reach the beauty above. Inspired by an ecstatic prescience of the glories beyond the grave, we struggle by multiform combinations among things and thoughts of time to attain a portion of that loveliness whose very elements perhaps appertain to eternity alone. And thus, when by poetry or when by music, the most entrancing of the poetic moods, we find ourselves melted into tears, we weep then, not as the Abate Gravina supposes, through excess of pleasure, but through a certain petulant, impatient sorrow at Pet our... Petulant. Petulant. Yeah. What did I say? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Petulant, impatient sorrow at our inability to grasp now, wholly here on earth, at once and forever, those divine and rapturous joys of which through the, the poem or through the music we attain to but a brief and indeterminate glimpse, glimpses. So it's that, yeah, that bit on 192. So we get a glimpse of supernatural, we, we get a piece of heaven. Yeah, well... We get a uh, taste of heaven is really... Yeah, and, it, and he says, so like uh, up here where he talks about the moth, um, it's at once a consequence and an indication of his perennial existence. Um, it's the desire of the moth for the star. So, you know, the moth is obviously never going to reach the star. You know, the perennial existence of man, you're obviously not going to live forever. You're not going to live long enough to create the perfect experience or the most beautiful experience. The moth is never going to get there. It's no mere appreciation of beauty before us but a wild effort to reach the beauty above, almost as if the wild effort is sort of what you want, even maybe though you don't know that that is what you want. It's, but that's the, the wild effort is the, is the feeling that you're trying to, where he, you know, over here, he talks about the repetition. It's not just the repetition. You want the, you want the feeling that the repetition gives you. That's why you repeat it. That's why it feels good to sing the chorus again mm -hmm. in, in the song. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So you weep, yeah, and, and he says we don't weep out of excess pleasure, but almost a, a sorrow at our in inability to grasp now those rapturous joys that almost like the, the lack of being able to attain it is what is so beautiful or so desirable. Mm -hmm. I think Lewis described it as we want to go on desiring it, not yeah, necessarily realizing yeah. it. We want to go, we, we want to live in the desire to realize it. Yes. Yeah. But then the other thing that goes on here is he's describing that there's an, there, you're looking up into heaven, you're gaining a glimpse. This idea is that, that, that in, in heaven um, there's this, this glimpse of something, something pure, something. it's the light. I believe that in our mortal form we have the capacity to glimpse heaven the capacity to taste it and that in so doing we have to activate our imagination because we can't realize it in fact uh, therefore um, 
there is something to be said for a moral imagination, and there is a reason why Dante's Inferno really changed literature and changed poetry and rocked the world. He moves from hell uh, to the seventh level of heaven. He, he's progressing through the layers. Uh, the, he's peeling the onion. He's moving up into the ethereal, and he's provocative in his language, and he's causing people's imagination to flirt with the eternal and a commune with Christ. It's pretty profound um, what he does there, what Dante does. And so what I see happening personally when I read this essay and I got to that passage that you also identified as your favorite bits, um, what happened for me was a yes moment where I said, yes, this is, this is the best way to put this. He didn't pull out a Bible text and talk about and read Isaiah at me or something. We didn't read theology. I had to step outside of of even you know Christian evangelicalism as I had experienced it up to this point. Not that they don't have the, that capacity, but for whatever reason, I was tone deaf to it. And go somewhere else where he described it from a different approach from the from the approach of a dead poet, a long dead poet in archaic language. In order for my imagination to be activated and for him to re for it to resonate with me anew or at all an unmuffled bell and and it's been rung and and the way that he did that was by describing heaven Dante you mean I'm sorry Poe oh <laughs> yeah so Poe says you are moved by this poetry yeah you are moved by this poetry because you get a glimpse of something and even in Annabelle Lee, when you think about it, why do we like Annabelle Lee? Well, he's, he's describing loving someone who's dead. Mm -hmm. But he's asserting that there is an eternal and that he's looking forward to that. And then he describes how the angels are jealous of him. The good guys, not the demons, the good guys are, are jealous of him because of the intensity of his affection. And while it isn't true that angels don't envy mankind. That's not a truth. That doesn't, it's nonetheless beautiful. It's nonetheless provocative. It, it, it uh, and I'm, I'm not going to get into theology again. This is not necessarily true, but it is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And what I found to be true with Rossetti, since she's already come up, was her poetry was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, Lord, thou art fullness. I am emptiness, yet hear my heart speak in its speechlessness, extolling thine unutterable loveliness. So as it relates to uh, my uh, work with the syndicates and within the community, the idea is that we are we as Christians have spent copious amounts of time worrying about truth, and that's important. But we haven't taken the time to inspire people with beauty. We haven't taken the time to say, "Think about heaven. Hmm. Think about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Think about the cool of the evening. Think mm -hmm. about the garden. Mm -hmm. Think about 
the fact that it's been boiled down by pop culture to playing a harp and hanging out with the goody two-shoes people for eternity and that we would so so easily surrender that or, or go back to old worn-out tropes. It seems that our sole means of, of inspiring is the extremely uninspiring or extremely uninspired chord structure and bridge and chorus again and again and again of pop music. Christian pop or otherwise. Well. Yeah, that's my point. Well, to your point, like I mentioned earlier, the reason you repeat the chorus is because you want the feeling again, not because the chorus is so great. So, like, people want to hear pop songs and churchy, pop-based worship music. Yeah, some people do, yeah. Because <laughs> some people do. Shine, Jesus, shine. <laughs> I mean, but you, but you, like, all the while during the verses, Yeah. tell me I'm wrong. All the while during the verses, you're like, I can't wait to get back to the chorus because it's the feeling of desire that is elating. You're not wrong. And I guess all I mean by that is that that boring pop music isn't excluded when you're talking about the experience and the, and the feelings that are evoked. And he, d- he well, so uh, Poe does mention music and rhythm. Music is the the purest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, and very especially in music, contending myself with certainty that music in its various modes of meter, rhythm, and rhyme is of so vast a moment in poetry as never to be wisely rejected. Vitally important and adjunct, he is simply silly who declines its assistance. Will not now pause to maintain its absolute essentiality. It is in music, perhaps, that the soul most nearly attains the great end for which, when inspired with poetic sentiment, it struggles. So nearly attains the great end, which is apparently the creation of supernal beauty. What does supernal mean? I meant to look it up and I forgot. It's um, a synonym of supernatural. Okay, that's what I... But I always agreed with him. Especially, this, maybe that's why I dog-eared 193, but when he says, it is in music, perhaps, that the soul most nearly attains the great end for which it struggles, which is the creation of supernal beauty. I, very much so my own self, identify with that because of my experiences in my freshman year of college, um, spending so much time singing poetry. And I wasn't just singing pop songs. I, I was singing, like, beautiful classics Classics in the very pure sense of the word and that they're taught and used to teach over and over now for centuries. But we sang this one called Amor de mi alma in choir, and I, I loved it from the beginning. It was sung in Spanish, in European Spanish, and it was basically, it was about love being stronger than death. What I remember more than the words, yeah. <laughs> I remember the tune, of course, but what I remember is that this one experience that I had singing it in a church. We'd gone on a, a bit of a choir tour over to the west side from Little Pullman over to the big Seattle city. And the, de- the end destination was to sing with the Seattle Symphony, whatever. I can't even remember what we sang with the symphony, but that was the end destination. But on, along the way, 
we sang at a couple of churches, you know, just probably more like Presbyterian style, like liturgical, formal style churches. But I remember this one, and it was old, stone, beautiful. There was probably some stained glass. There were pews. There was lots of wood, you know. So there was a lot of things in the experience. I remember singing Amor de Mi Alma with the whole choir and, like, the feeling of being as... And I thought to myself, this might be as close to heaven as I'll ever get while I have my breath. Because the experience of singing those words and that tune in that setting with all the other voices, you know, together made me think, oh, this is where the, that thin place where the divide between the eternal or the supernatural and the natural is very small. That divide becomes, well, for me in that moment, it was almost non-existent. So that's what that, that bit on in music the soul most nearly attains a great end for which it struggles again that moth toward the stars I'll never I'll never attain that but it's almost like I don't care I'll just keep fluttering into the outer space with my little scaly wings (laughs) there is a bit at the end that I kind of love we shall reach however more immediately Hmm. a distinct conception of what true poetry is by mere reference, again, just referring to those things. We don't have to draw these black lines. We can just refer to the... Yeah, vaguely. You know, yeah. Anyway, uh, by mere reference to a few of the simple elements which induce in the poet himself the true poetical effect, he recognizes the ambrosia which nourishes his soul in the bright orbs that shine in heaven, in the volutes of the flower. What's a volute? No idea. I don't know. In the clustering of the low shrubberies. Like, why is a cluster of shrubbery poetic? But It is. You know. It can be beautiful. Right? So but he's even, like, this isn't a poem, but I'm, he's making references. He's evocative. Right, right, right. Yeah. That, so I, I basically feel, you know, I'm having the experience of. Of poetry. Of Go poetry. on, read on, read on, read on. From Poe? Yeah, keep going, keep going. Don't stop. Oh, okay. Good, because I like this part. It's a good part. (laughs) Uh, The clustering of low shrubberies, in the waving of the grain fields, in the slanting of the tall eastern trees, in the blue distance of mountains, in the grouping of clouds, in the twinkling of half-hidden brooks, in the gleaming of silver rivers, in the repose of sequestered lakes, in the star-mirroring depths of lonely wells. He perceives it in the songs of birds, in the harp of Aeolus, in the singing of the night wind, in the repining voice of the forest, in the surf that complains to the shore, in the fresh breath of the woods, in the scent of the violet, in the voluptuous perfume of the hyacinth, in the suggestive odor that comes to him at eventide from far distant, undiscovered islands over dim oceans, illimitable and unexplored. (laughs) drink it drink it he owns it in all noble thoughts in all unworldly motives in all holy impulses in all chivalrous 
generous and self-sacrificing deeds, he feels it in the beauty of woman, in the grace of her step, in the luster of her eye, in the melody of her voice, in her soft laughter, in her sighing, in the harmony of the rustle of her robes. He deeply feels it in her winning endearments, in her burning enthusiasms, in her gentle charities, in her meek devotional endurances. But above all, ah, far above all, he kneels to it. He worships it in the faith, in the purity, in the strength, in the altogether divine majesty of her love. I found that the rest wasn't even really worth reading. <laughs> <laughs> that last paragraph was sort of like, what? Where did that you come from? To, you need to stop now. <laughs> Just put away your head. <laughs> One of the things that, that came to me with Tolkien's writing was his argument against the assertion that in order to consume and savor literature, specifically fiction, you have to participate in suspension of disbelief. So mm. when you read a thing, you don't, you, while you're reading it, you're not constantly thinking, uh, this is fake, this isn't real, this right, didn't right, really right, happen. Right, right. Tolkien's argument was that you, you submerge yourself as if you're diving into a cool pool and inside of this sub-creation that the, uh, the creator, the sub-creator has, has articulated. He painted a picture and you had an opportunity to jump in by way of your imagination. Mm. So you enter into this sub-creation and then when you emerge from the pool, the way you see the world is changed. The reason I believe this is true of Tolkien is because there was a period in my life before I read The Lord of the Rings when I would go hiking in the woods and my imagination was activated by the beauty and the smells of the forest mm -hmm. and kind of the, the glasses that I was wearing, the sunglasses I was wearing, that uh, changed the hues and the color and my experience of that, of the woods, of the Cascade Mountains specifically, mm -hmm. was shaped by Disney's films and Bambi specifically. After reading Tolkien and returning to the woods, it was no longer shaped by Bambi and, you know, the little critters in the forest having adventures. Mm -hmm. It was the question of if elves existed, this is where they would live. Mm -hmm. And if there were goblins, they would be over there. Mm -hmm. And if there were, the, if the Dunedain wandered and if they, if the rangers trailblazed, it would look like this. This would be precisely the kind of place where they would be. And, and this animated my imagination throughout my tweens and that is a sharp contrast. So mm -hmm. the sub-creation of Walt Disney, which was elegant and beautiful and powerful mm -hmm. and Americana, really. Mm -hmm. And then you have the sub-creation of Tolkien, which is brooding and has a sharp contrast between extreme beauty and extreme ugly. So when Tolkien came in and, and he asserted that a sub-creation, when you emerge from it, you see the world differently and possibly more accurately. At least your capacity to savor things has been extremely expanded. Uh, and, and I think that that's true of Poe. I think that's true of, of most poetry that I've read that is good poetry. In particular, the Romantic poets and Victorian era poets are my favorite. When I experience and when I choose to enter into affection, romantic love with my wife, where I discipline myself to kiss her for real, um, and not just a quick peck on the cheek. I'm reminded of Browning. My experience mm -hmm. of romance with my wife has been changed and altered 
by Elizabeth Barrett Browning's description of loving her husband with with the broken, hopeless dreams of years past, of taking that agony and then using it in a way, somehow, to love her husband. The way that men turn from good, we, uh, sorry, turn from praise. Good men turn from praise, and I'm like, this, this is this is stretching out my simple, so my simplistic barbarism. This is causing this subcreation is causing me to change the way not only that I relate to God's creation, but other human beings. Humanity mm-hmm. has changed; it's been altered, and the capacity of the saints to to build a pool that is beautiful. To, to submerge people in a sub-creation. And when they emerge from that sub-creation, their relation to the world is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like, it has been inspired by supernal beauty. It has been inspired to glimpse the eternal, to taste heaven for a second, to live in that agony, that blissful agony mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. expectation. Mm-hmm. And that is a sharp contrast to the simplistic immoral imagination which is appealed to constantly by the anti-christian culture where they say imagine when you could imagine and live out this fantasy of revenge mm-hmm. imagine and live out this fantasy of wanton lewd behavior like they're 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 enticing you and i remember christians in the 90s and even in the 80s when they were living in reaction there was a quiet suspicion that was beginning to invade, which was that we can't compete. The desire for the flesh to be slaked, for lust to be slaked, can overwhelm our, like every, it's like, what's the response to alcoholism? Don't drink alcohol ever, okay? Mm -hmm. Expand your palate. I mean, alcoholism is going to be dancing in front of you, but what if you instead you disciplined yourself and we spent time increasing your capacity to savor things? Mm-hmm. What if it became not about getting drunk and instead became about savoring wine? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the list is long mm-hmm. and exhaustive. Mm-hmm. I can go through all of these supposed vices, but we kept fighting fire with isolation instead of fighting fire with water. And I'm convinced that in order for Christianity to win, we have got to be inspiring the moral imagination over and against the immoral imagination. We need to do so with a faith that humanity has the capacity to aspire to that and that in the end it will prevail, that people have a secret longing. And I meet this with young women I'm just the other day I'm thinking of somebody that had come to me and they'd been living with their girlfriend for years and um, because they'd lived with their girlfriend for years he said to me you know what do I need to do and you know what, what are your thoughts and I said well you can go one or two three different ways but one of those ways is that you ask her to marry you and you get married right because they'd been living together he was like well you know I'll, we'll just go to the courthouse and I said no you need to buy a ring you need to buy an engagement ring and then you need you need to ask her to marry you, right? And he got back to me and he said, I don't have money. So, so the church gave him money to buy uh, an engagement ring. And he's a really solid guy. I, I like him quite a bit. And he said, um, well, I, I'm not going to, you know, I talked to her. We talked about it and we're going to get married. So I guess I don't need to ask her. And I said, 
And I quote, I said, you need to um, have someone there with a the camera and you need to have the little girl that is her little girl, not your little girl, present. And then you need to get down on your knee and ask her to marry you. So he did. And she cried, or at least she teared up. And the reason she teared up was because it mattered. Mm -hmm. That's why. Yeah. And for, for you to come and say, well, it doesn't matter now. And I can understand the jaded approach, but that's not reality. Reality is, is no matter how dark you've gone, you have the capacity to experience the sublime. Mm -hmm. No matter how dark you've gone. Yeah. Anyway, um, and then he was just, you know, hey, we'll just hurry up and go to the courthouse. Well, now she's going to buy a dress. She's like, hell no. <laughs> and we're going to figure out a photographer. We're going to have it in the yard if we have to. And, and, and Jared's going to officiate. Like, this is happening. Yeah. And, and, and that's my position. My position is there is a moral imagination mm -hmm. that is far more powerful than people give it credit for, especially Christians. And, and there's a lot of reasons why Christians don't do that. And some of it, not all of it, but some of it is because it's work. I don't think the besetting sin of evangelicalism is bad eschatology. I think <laughs> it's just laziness. I think so too. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. I think so too. Well, and that brings me, this might be taking a turn down a different road, but I, well, th that brings me to a point, you know, why I don't like the way evangelicals do church after experiencing even song at Westminster Abbey. Mm, oh my gosh. You know, there's nothing lazy about the no. service or the building or the building or, you know, the hours that the choir boys spend or the hours that that priests, not priests, but yeah. you know, minister spends, you know, putting together that even song service. There's nothing lazy about that. And don't, I mean, this, maybe this is why I don't like our church very much <laughs> because we don't, because there's no, and, and I fight against this with my like pitiful attempts at, but I'm lazy. I, so I, I, I should finish my thoughts <laughs> as they come out of my mouth. Um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that I don't like our church very much is because there's nothing beautiful about it because we haven't put the dedication into, or the, the time and just the plain work into making it a beautiful service into like, well, we talked about it, so we're going to get married. That's kind of what I feel about our church rather than like, no, 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 get down on your knees and praise the Lord. <laughs> oh, Chrissy. Right? <laughs> Were you ever a Peterson? No. <laughs> Where's the gin? Where's the gin? I actually, to be Where's honest, I, I've been thinking the about the botanist this whole time. <laughs> the botanist, I need gin. <laughs> I need some gin. If but we're going to talk about <laughs> Poe, then I need to be an uh, alcoholic for the day. <laughs> but do you see what I'm saying? Like, there's nothing that can compare mm. to even song at Westminster or even uh, mo Sunday morning mass at uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, at, at Notre Dame? Yeah. At Notre Dame. <laughs> 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 Why 
why couldn't I think of that? Well, it burned down recently. Right, it so, yeah. burned down recently. But you know, there's there's nothing at our little weird church. Like we barely pray. So there's nothing poetic ab- about our church, and I think that's why it doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> and that's precisely why it appeals to my husband, because there's nothing poetic and everything action-oriented yeah. about it. That's you. Do you see what I'm saying? So Yeah, I see what you're saying. So, yeah. you know, your story that you're talking about, like, he was willing to be like, well, we talked about it, we're getting married, it's fine. And you're like, no, it's not fine. You need to make it poetry. So when he got down on his knee and she teared, that was poetry, right? Yeah. Or, well. That was a glimpse. No, no, yeah. I mean, he was saying it was poetry. Yeah. Poe, po, by the way, in the essay, keeps calling it poetry. Um, and, and that is a way to describe it. But it was the poetic principle at work. It was the glimpse of heaven. It was the hope realized, a hope that was buried. Right. And so many people take their hopes and their dreams and they bury them and say, I'm contaminated. I am not good enough. I am unworthy. I am, uh, it's too far gone. And my response is maybe it is too far gone and you won't be a princess in a tale, but that doesn't mean it's all gone. It's mm-hmm. never all mm-hmm. gone, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ever. Mm. The Goblin Market, the end. <laughs>